Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Okay, let's read the first verse of our passage. It's kind of the summary statement of everything that's come before in 1 John. It kind of prepares us for the conclusion of 1 John that we're going to read today all through the rest of the chapter. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay. With that verse in mind, I want you to imagine farmland that's been prepared for its next planting. The soil, the, the soil of the farmland is cultivated, the seed is distributed, and the plot is watered and tended. And due to the diligence of the farmer, eventually the seed springs forth into visible life. Because of all of the work of the farmer, uh, a harvest eventually arrives. And I think that John has that in mind at this point in his letter. Like a farmer, he has done his work. He has laid the groundwork. He has taught his readers about Jesus. He's told us about the Jesus who walked and talked and lived so many decades before the moment that he wrote this letter. And he urged them to believe in the Jesus who had come from eternal glory from heaven and walked here on earth, born as a human baby, but then dying on the cross as an adult man. The Messiah, Christ, Savior of the world, died on the cross for the sin of the world and then rose bodily from the grave. He was not like, as so many of the people who'd left the church in John's era taught, he was not just the Christ while he lived and then his Christness departed from him upon the cross. No, he was the Christ from his birth, his whole life, his ministry, his death and burial, and also his resurrection. And John told his audience to believe in that Jesus. Don't believe in a counterfeit. Don't believe in anything less than the Son of God and God the Son. But as we also saw throughout the whole letter, John also told his readers to adhere to the commandments of God. You know, obey God. Not, not only believe in Jesus, but go past just belief, faith, trust in Jesus. But real saving faith will produce a life that says, I want to be a legion to God. I want to submit myself to the commands of Scripture. And finally, John over and over again through the letter told us that not only should we believe in Jesus, and not only should we adhere to God's commands, but we should love one another. Have you gotten sick of that exhortation these last couple of months? Over and over again, John tells us that we should be a people who love one another. And in John's mind, he thought that as he had laid that groundwork, as he had prepared that soil, as he had taught those doctrines, that it would lead to a confidence. Look at it again in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In John's mind, the way that a believer could know that they have eternal life is by considering, do I believe in Jesus? Am I allegiant to his word? Am I, and am I loving his people? And a person like that, they know there's a confidence, there's an assurance is the biblical word, that they have eternal life. And John now is going to tell us that he thinks there are certain things that will bloom 
from a person who knows that they have eternal life. The first thing that will bloom is prayer, and the second thing that will bloom are specific convictions about God. And so we're gonna look at both of those today. Let's look at the first in verse 14 through 17, uh, the conviction uh, to pray, or the, the response of prayer. He says in verse 14 and 15, that's as far as we'll go uh, at this moment, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, verse 15, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. I'll just say it like this. John was a man who believed in prayer. He was around maybe even as a teenager during the life of Jesus watched the ministry of Christ, followed Jesus closely. So he saw Jesus go up to the mountaintop to pray. He saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He saw Jesus regularly, routinely depart from the disciples and go in the, to the wilderness to spend times alone in prayer to his Father. He witnessed the prayer life of Jesus. There's actually a moment in Jesus' life where the disciples get together and they approach Jesus and say, Jesus, could you teach us how to do that. I think there was this growing understanding as they watched the prayer life of Jesus that they used to think they knew how to pray, but after watching Jesus for a while, they realized, we really, we're not doing that. So Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? But after Jesus had risen from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, John was a man who was continually experienced in prayer. He saw the church fueled by prayer, going out into all the world, effective because of prayer. He saw moments where they were fearful and needed courage, and they'd get together, cry out to God, and ask for boldness, and he would pour out his spirit upon them. He had witnessed through the duration of his life that prayer was an effective thing. This is not a 12-year-old saying to us, hey, I just gave my life to Jesus, and I think that prayer might be a really good idea. No, this is a man who is likely 90 years old or thereabouts who has for his whole life witnessed the power of going to God in prayer. So he is convinced believers have a great gift, an opportunity to be able to cry out to God in prayer. That's why he says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now the first part of the prayer is what I'd like to think about first. He says there in verse 14, if we ask anything. Now I think all of us, or many of us already know that prayer is more than just making requests, right? I mean, there's other elements to prayer. There's confession in prayer. There's worship in prayer where we just adore God for who he is. There's listening in prayer where we're silent. We give God a chance to speak to our hearts, to impress something upon our hearts. But all of that said, there are still moments where we are supposed to ask God for something in prayer. Have you, have you ever kind of gotten going in a, in a prayer to God and realized, I have no idea where this prayer is going. I have nothing to ask. I don't know really what it is that I'm trying to bring to God. Maybe you've been like that in a prayer meeting before. I know I've been in countless prayer meetings where there's a prayer that goes out and, you know, somebody's like really detailing the whole problem to God, you know, just like, God, you know this and you know that and this person said this and then this happened and it's like a play-by-play -play detail of like everything that 
that God might need to know. And then the next thing that sometimes happens is the, the person then reminds God of every single instance in the word or in scripture that might have something to say about what they're praying about. It's like a Bible study for God. You know, and God's like, wow, this is so good. That's in the Bible. Whoa, you know. And then almost awkwardly, the prayer just kind of ends sometimes without a request. What is it that we're asking for? But God here wants us to ask. That's what we learn. He wants us to bring our requests to him. I have a friend who has a little four-year-old daughter, and I'm sure at her own house where she's comfortable, she's different than when she's with us, but when she's with me and Christina, she will not ask for anything. So she sees a cookie and she says, I really like cookies. (laughs) Or she sees the television and she says, I really like watching my shows. And you know that she's actually asking, may I have a cookie or may I watch a show? But she doesn't like to ask. But God here, he wants us to ask. He wants us to make a request to him. So we're to thank him, for sure. We're to praise him, for sure. But notice what Paul said. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, so we know, we see here in this passage, we are to ask, we have the privilege of being able to ask the Lord. But John went on to say in verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, according to his will. Now, let me ask you, how does that little attachment hit you? You know, when you hear, okay, I can ask anything according to his will, does that kind of burst the bubble on prayer for you a little bit? You know, does it feel like the fine print? on a contract, you know, like prayer, oh, but it's gotta be according to his will. Does it feel like you walked into a store that had a sign on the outside that said, up to 80% off, you know, and then you walk in the store and there's like a little table with all these things nobody wants that are up to 80% off, but the rest of the store is basically full price. Or is this like your frequent flyer miles, you know, where you're like, I could fly anywhere in the world, and then they're like, but only on these certain days and only to these specific places. Does it feel like that to you when you see that phrase, according to his will? I think for many believers, that's what that phrase feels like. But I want to show you a couple of amazing truths. First of all, and this is likely the biggest one that I'll share with you right now about that phrase, according to his will. I want you to remember something. I want you to remember how the Bible begins. You see, the Bible begins with God. Not with us, but with God. And as God creates on each successive day of creation, God sees what was made and he says it is good. After creating man, he points him to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and says, don't eat of that tree. But in those first two chapters, who is the exclusive party deciding what is good? It's God. And humans are living in peace, in paradise. And part of paradise is human beings saying, I'm not the one who decides what's good. I'm not the one who decides what's right. It's God who decides what's good for me. That's part of what paradise is. But the serpent came along and whispered into Eve's ear and said, God is holding out on you. 
He knows the day that you eat of that tree, you will be like him. And she saw that that tree was good for food, that it was desirable to the eyes, and that it would make her wise. And so she and her husband Eve ate of that fruit. What was that? That was the first instance in human history where we humans said, I know what is good more than God knows what is good. And so when we pray like this, according to God's will, we say, Lord, let your will be done. I'll just say it like this. It's bringing us back to a little bit of the paradise that God originally intended for us. And it's preparing us for the paradise that he has in store for us as his children forever and ever. In other words, Matthew 6, verse 10, where we're to pray, your will be done, that's what prayer is supposed to be all about. It brings us back to that place where we say, God, you know best. Second, another thing that I'd like to point out to you is that prayer, it's not meant as a means to conform God's will to our will, but our will to God's. Now, this conforming work, it requires that we learn Scripture. Because it's there in the Bible that we can actually learn of what God's will is. It's so clearly defined in Scripture. So how in the world can we pray uh, in line with God's will if we don't know God's word? We have to know God's word to be able to pray in line with God's will. But listen to me right now. As you're going through the word and you uncover God's will, it actually should lead you to a strong confidence in prayer. Let me give you an example. Remember last week, we came to that place in 1 John 5, verse 3, where John reminds us that one of the attributes of believers is that we would obey his commandments. And remember, he had that little attachment, and his commandments are not burdensome. And we kind of wrestled with that last week. What does it mean that his commandments are not burdensome? But, but what we've been discovering, like we saw last week or throughout all of 1 John, is that one of the things that you could categorize as God's will, God's desire, is that we would be a people who surrender to him, submit to him, who submit to his desires, his will, his uh, word. So, so think about that. What John is saying here is that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. So you've just read that he wants you to be obedient to him. So what that tells you is that you can boldly go to God and say, God, it's in the Bible that your desire for me is that I would be obedient to you. Would you help me to be obedient to you? And what he's saying to us is that when we pray according to his desires, he hears us. When we pray this way, not only are we praying his will, but we're changing our own will. I'm becoming more interested in the things of God as I unearth his desires in the word and begin praying them into my experience and life. It's not only a time to petition God, but to yield my life and my will to the purposes of God. John Stott said it like this, every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done, from Matthew chapter 6. But another thing that we have to know is that prayer, it leads to real help. It leads to real help. I, I'm, I'm convinced that many believers don't think this is true, so hear me out right now. John thought this way. He, he thought real prayer leads to real help. He, he'd experienced this, like I said, for the duration of his Christian life. He knew that prayer was an effective and central practice for any believer wanting to make a difference in their world. That's why he says things like this. Verse 14, he hears us, we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John believes we're heard by God when we pray according to his will and that he grants 
the requests that we have asked of him. This is an amazing truth, that the God of the universe, the sovereign creator God of the universe, responds to the prayers of the people that he has made. That little old Nate Holdridge has an audience with the divine. It's an incredible truth of scripture. But, but I'm convinced that if you approach the Bible thoughtfully, regularly, and with discipline in your life, you are going to be confronted with this truth over and over and over again, because you can't read more than five chapters in any place in the Bible without confronting the truth that God is looking for people who will pray and that he wants to respond to those people. You go to the book of Genesis and you see Enoch praying and God delivering him. Noah praying and God pulling him out of judgment. Abraham praying and Lot being spared. Isaac praying and being given a wife. Jacob praying and God blessing him. Joseph praying and God interpreting dreams for him. And that's just the book of Genesis. The whole Old Testament bears witness to God answering the prayers of his people. And in the New Testament, this idea is repeated. God is looking for a people who will cry out to him in prayer. In fact, the sentiment, I think, of all of Scripture concerning prayer is condensed in this statement from 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. In other words, humble prayer leads to real help from God. Okay, but this brings up a question. I want to talk about this for a second. If something is God's will, sometimes we ask this, if something is God's will, then why doesn't he just do it apart from our prayers? If something is God's will, why doesn't he just do it apart from our prayers? Well, I think there's a, a lot of answers to that question that takes some nuance, including the fact that God's will is never thwarted. He does accomplish his purposes but I think it's helpful to condense it down to this. I'll just say it this way. God wants to work with us, not without us. God wants to work with us, not without us. Have you ever thought about that? And when you read the book of Acts, you know how the book of Acts could have gone? It could have gone where Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and then he like got the angel squad together, and he's like, yo, angels, go evangelize. And the angels just went out throughout the world just telling people about Jesus. He could have done it that way, but instead he decided to use people. In fact, there was a moment when Cornelius, a man who didn't know God, he's like, I think there's a God there, I want to know him. An angel comes to him and appears to him and says, hey man, the truth is out there, but you need to go ask Peter about it. He wouldn't even tell him the message himself because God wants to use human beings. He wants to partner with us here on earth. He wants to work with us, not without us. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. He said, we are working together with him, or we are God's co-workers, or we are God's partners. This is part of why God wants us to pray. We are fellow workers with him. He's not going to violate our will. He wants to partner with us. All right, we'll talk more about prayer in a moment, but let's move on in the passage and see a specific area or avenue of prayer that John had in mind right here in this passage. Let's read verse 16 and 17 together. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, 
There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, does John have your attention at this point? Like over and over again, he keeps using this phrase, sin that leads to death. And we're all just like, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, he's got our attention at this point. And, and this whole thing is, look, when you see a Christian, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, who's committing a sin not leading to death, John's idea is pray for them. Cry out to God for them. He will give that person life. But, he warns, if they are committing a sin not leading to death, John says, I'm not going to tell you to pray about that. He doesn't specifically forbid it, but he just says, I'm not going to command you to pray for a person that's committing a sin leading to death. And then, just to make sure that we know that all sin is serious in the eyes of God, he says, you know, every wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, this is an interesting phrase in the Bible. Sometimes when you're teaching the Bible, going through passages of scripture, like I, if I was a topical teacher, I don't think I'd ever teach you verse 16 and 17. Like, hey, these are just fun verses for us to consider. Put them on a coffee mug, they're great. Sometimes though, when you're teaching the Bible, it feels like being a school bus driver, where you're, you're, you're going in a certain direction. John is trying to tell us, pray. And as I just imagine a school bus driver cruising down the road and seeing up ahead like roadkill on the side of the road and just going, oh man, I don't want these little kids to see all this roadkill, you know? And he's just driving, and the, but there's nothing he can do. And pretty soon every kid's got their face plastered up against the window and like that's all they want to see. So here we are, we're supposed to be talking a prayer about prayer and all you guys can think of is what in the world is the sin leading to death, right? That's the thing that's in your mind. So let's talk about that for a second. As you can imagine, scholars hypothesize about a lot of different competing uh, interpretations of what the sin leading to death is. Some, I think, extremely erroneously think that what John is talking about are sins that are so serious they cannot be forgiven, like mortal sins versus venial sins in the Catholic Church. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't even hint at that. In fact, the Bible hints at something contrary to that because all throughout scripture, we see people who are adulterers, murderers, coming to the Lord, being forgiven by God. Others think that John was referring to the apostasy of some that lived in his era. You know, they totally denied Jesus, and they renounced their faith. Uh, but John's letter teaches us that that's not something that believers are even capable of. True, legitimate disciples, they can't go that route. Others think that John is, listen to this, thinking about or talking about, about brothers or sisters in Christ who even though they're saved, they committed a sin that God must discipline them for that sin, not with spiritual eternal death, but with physical death right here and now. And there is some precedent for this in scripture. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five are examples of this. They committed a sin of hypocrisy that was so grave that God took their lives. It doesn't mean that they weren't saved, but God was bringing discipline upon their lives. He had an expiration date upon them because of their sin. And others believe that what John was talking about was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 12 and in other places, which at its core is merely the rejection of Jesus' work upon the cross. And I think that I'm in this camp uh, when John says it, but I'm not sure. I, I just, I, you know, I know what I know in the Bible, and I don't know what this 
is actually saying. I'm tempted at this point to quote uh, a great theologian, Andy Candriva, our middle school leader. <laughs> he taught our kids First John last year, and I got a copy of his notes. And every once in a while, I'll look and see what he said to the kids in a section that we're going to go through. And when he got to this passage, this is what he said. He said, there are a few things that this might mean, but I don't really want to get into them. <laughs> I like that. But then he went on to say this. I thought it was very astute. He said, I don't want us distracted from the real issue. The big point here is to pray. Pray for God's will. And pray for the life and holiness of other believers. I think that's well said. I'm glad that a guy like him is up there teaching our kids. So we are to pray. That's what John is telling us. And when someone is in spiritual danger, we are to cry out to God on their behalf. One people group, in other words, he's saying that we should pray for our believers who have gotten themselves into spiritual trouble. You see them stuck in sin, and you're supposed to cry out to God for them. He says in verse 16, if you see them, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now, this whole thing should come as no surprise to us, because what has John told us throughout the whole letter? He said, love each other. So now he's thinking about love in the context of prayer, and he's saying, look, when someone is in spiritual danger, you know, they're just doing their own thing, they're being disobedient to God, it's up to you to pray like their life depends upon your prayers. You need to cry out to God because of the thing that they have gotten sucked into in their lives. Now, this isn't the only way that we respond to a brother or sister in Christ who's gotten sucked into spiritual disobedience to the Lord. Now, the Bible teaches that sometimes we need to confront or rebuke. The Bible teaches that sometimes the church has to bring discipline into a person's life. And the Bible teaches of an elaborate whole process of restoration and redemption for the repentant sinner. But what John is telling us is that prayer is the first move. When you see someone who's living outside of obedience to God, you got to cry out to God on their behalf. You need to go to the Lord. That needs to be your first move. And I tell you guys this a lot, but each summer when my family goes up to Lake Tahoe, we spend quite a bit of time at the beach there, you know, just kind of lying around, you know, lying on the sand, just getting refreshed and, and all of that. And sometimes, you know, over the years, I've seen little kids out there in the water, and there's, you, could, you could sometimes see, like a little kid, sometimes it's been our kids, sometimes other people's kids, and they're struggling, you know, they're struggling to stay afloat. And in moments like that, you know, you act, you get up, you go into the water, you help them out. But there's always a couple days that I'm at the beach and one of my friends is there with his family. And he used to be a lifeguard and swam and uh, played water polo as a younger man. So he's just a way better swimmer than I am. So on the days that he's there, if I see that same thing happening, I don't get up and start running out. I smack him and I say, dude, you got to go help that kid. Because I know by the time I get up and get in the water, he'll get up and just pass me and blow right by me. So my first move in that moment is to alert him. That's the idea here. He's saying, look, when you see your spiritual sibling floundering, drowning in sin, your first move must be to cry out to God to say, God, would you help them? Would you help them? But to pray, like I said earlier, like their lives depend on it. You see, when Jesus came, he died on the cross for the sins of the world. That means that Jesus took responsibility 
for, for others. Sin wasn't his fault, but he took responsibility for us. And when you grow in Christ's likeness, one of the things that you'll discover is that you grow to take responsibility for others like Jesus did. And this includes our prayer lives, where we cry out to God for others because of the trouble that they're in. Okay, now before we move to the last few verses of the letter and you know, end our time in 1 John and end our time this morning, I, I want to talk for a second. I feel compelled to talk about prayer in general because I think a lot of believers struggle with prayer. Uh, partly, they struggle with prayer because they feel like maybe it's something they'd like to engage in, but they don't have the discipline for it, and they feel like, you know, I, I just kind of, I try, but, but I, I don't feel like I get anywhere. But I think a lot of believers struggle in prayer because they, they believe it's impractical. They think it's a waste of time. They don't see it as producing anything real or tangible uh, in life. But, but listen to me right now. If we are Jesus' disciples, that's what we want to be. Jesus said, follow me. If we're following Jesus, if we're following his life, there is not much that is more Jesus-y than prayer. Like he was about it. It's what he did. He broke away often to spend time with his father in prayer. So how can we say we want to follow Jesus yet neglect prayer in our lives? I think though a lot of times, and right now I could give you a bunch of tips for prayer, but I want to do something a little bit deeper. I think that oftentimes prayerlessness in our lives, it is a barometer of something deeper that's going on. You've heard the analogy of the canary in the coal mine, right? Old miners used to take canaries into the coal mine because a canary would die sooner from, from less than ideal conditions in the air than a human would. So if a canary stopped singing and died in its cage, then the miners would know this air is unhealthy for us. We got to get out of here. And I think prayerlessness is a canary in the coal mine in a lot of believers' lives. So let's think about some of those things. You know, one could simply be this, a weak understanding of your position in Christ Jesus. You know, if you don't have a firm grasp on the gospel, you don't understand how in Christ you are and how before the Father you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. You don't get that you have that kind of access, then you'll have a difficult time coming to God in prayer. And if that's an issue for you, one thing I'd encourage you to do is go back and listen to our teachings through the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans, because both of those books declare resoundingly the great position that we have in Christ. Another thing, though, is that if someone's life has become too cluttered, in other words, so maxed out, no margin in their calendar, and no healthy Sabbath rhythms, then likely they won't pray. You know, here's a, been a thing that I've learned, because my family, we practice Sabbath. We try to take a day each week to just do nothing but just kind of be together, reflect on the Lord, just enjoy each other. But through the years of practicing that, I've come to learn this is so valuable. It's so restorative. It's so helpful. It does so much for us. So for me, to get up in the morning and spend an hour or so having a mini Sabbath, before the Lord, it's like, in my mind, I'm already convinced this works. This is so important. So when someone doesn't have that in their life, and they're marginless and just always on the go, it's going to be hard for them to be convinced that to take 30 minutes to spend time in prayer is actually worth their while. 
Or another thing, if someone spends the bulk of their life feeding the flesh, jumping from one form of entertainment to the next, they also will likely not pray. You know, the reality is that it's so much easier to passively consume entertainment than it is to pray. I don't know how many of you are going to go see Star Wars this next weekend, but I am. You know, my family's going to be there. We're going to be there on Thursday night. We got our tickets. I am devoted. And, you know, there's going to be no, like, discipline in that moment. There's going to be no, like, man, I, re- I got to really figure out how to concentrate for these two and a half hours. It's just going to be easy. I'm going to be there with my candy, drinking soda, and I'm just going to soak it all in. That's not the way it is with prayer. With prayer, it takes a real discipline. It takes, it takes an ability to say, man, I, I'm, I'm here, I'm gonna focus. But when a person allows themselves to, in an unhealthy way, just continually be receiving entertainment, uh, it's really hard for that kind of person to pray. If someone is engaged in habitual sin, secret or not, they also likely will not pray. And if someone is too trusting of their own power and ability and has too little admiration for God and his power and ability, they likely also will not pray. And if someone has allowed their mind to become a war zone of distraction to the point that they can no longer uh, read a book because their mind just can't concentrate long enough to read a book or to have a long conversation with somebody else without looking at their phone, Uh, They've likely destroyed their ability to be able to concentrate long enough to be able to spend time in prayer. Your mind is a gift that God has given to you. You must steward it well to be able to pray. You see, it takes all of these things to be able to pray. You have to know the soundness of your position in Christ. You have to become a person who knows how to step away in Sabbath. You have to crave the spiritual dimension more than Netflix, and you have to walk in the light. You must think highly of God's ability, and you have to be able to concentrate for a long period of time to be able to pray. And without those elements, I guarantee you, prayer will be a frustrating experience. But with those elements, let me tell you, prayer can be the best part of your day. I'm convinced of it. I've experienced it. It can be beautiful to cry out to God in this way. All right, so those are just some thoughts about prayer, I really encourage you to take up prayer in your own life and just get into the word because I realize that in our modern era, one of the exclusive things that many Christians pray for is for physical healing in the lives of others who are are sick. And the reality is, is that Jesus secured for every believer their total and complete physical healing forever. That's part of the gospel message. But that doesn't mean that his primary concern is our physical healing in the here and now. There are are more things to pray for beyond just that. We can totally pray for the physical well-being of our friends and family, but there is so much more to bring to God than just that. All right, let's end the letter by looking at the convictions that John thinks will turn up in our hearts as a result of the truth that he's given to us uh, throughout this epistle. Notice the phrase, we know, in these three sentences. Verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in verse 20, a third time, he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God 
and eternal life. All right, those, those three verses, they're really just a recap of everything that we've looked at throughout 1 John over the last few months. And John makes the point by using the phrase, we know. So he started the letter very confident and certain, and he ends the letter very confident and certain. Everything's black and white for John. He says, we know these things. The first conviction that John says we know is in verse 18. It's just this, Jesus will help us overcome in life. He'll help us overcome. That's why he says in verse 18, everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. Jesus is there to help us overcome the world, the evil one that exists. This doesn't mean that believers are immune from trials. We know that, right? We're going to go through trials and difficulties. I'd say in some ways, if you're doing the Christian life right, you'll probably experience more trials. Uh, So he's not saying we're going to be free of sickness or other trials that humanity is plagued with. What he's saying is, is that we don't have to succumb to the pressures of this world. We don't have to sin. John is concerned with our spiritual condition. He says the evil one cannot make us sin. In other words, we cannot say the devil made me do it. Jesus protects us from that. So the first conviction, Jesus will help us overcome. Conviction number two is we belong to God. Notice verse 19. He says we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's the world, but he says, look, if I'm in Christ, I'm different from the world. I belong to God. So the conviction here is that we belong to God, and that makes us different from the world that we're living in. So the second conviction, we belong to God. And number three, the last conviction is Jesus is the way to God. John said at the end there in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So John told us that life is found in Jesus. Then he goes on to say, and we know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the one who teaches us about God, but also connects us to God, so much so that we are in him. So the concept there is that Jesus is the way to God. So the three convictions that close the letter are really simple. Number one, Jesus will help us overcome. Number two, we belong to God. And number three, Jesus is the way to God. And I hope these three convictions, the reason I'm not spending a lot of time talking about them this morning is because these three convictions have already surfaced throughout the whole letter. This is just him concluding everything that he said previously. And I hope these convictions have built inside of you as we've looked at 1 John. Jesus will help me overcome. I don't have to walk in the flesh. I don't have to follow the world. We belong to God. I'm his. I'm secure in him. And Jesus is the one who connects me to the Father. He's the way to God. Okay, let's conclude, though, with the last verse that John gives to us, verse 21. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is interesting. That's the end of the letter. So many other letters throughout the New Testament, it's like so-and-so says hi to so-and-so, make sure you give your greetings to this guy and that guy, greet each other in a holy kiss, grace and peace to you, grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, kind of conclusion to the letter. But John just decides, I'm going to end my letter like this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like the ultimate mic drop end of a letter. Just he walks away, that's it. And why does he say this at the very end of his letter? I think a lot of times we think that he's just introducing a new subject. You know, he said what he's going to say, and he gets to the end, and he's like, you know, I got one additional, like, P.S. Watch out for idolatry. 
We're like, okay, that's random, but good. Okay, we won't, we won't, we won't turn to idols. But think about what John has been doing in his whole letter. He's been thinking about people who heard about Jesus, then twisted Jesus into a form that they liked. Here he tells us, Jesus shows us the way to the real, true, living God. He is the real, true, living God. So John, I think when he says, keep yourselves from idols, sure. He's saying, don't take a piece of wood or metal and make it into an image that you worship. That's base idolatry. Also, yes, don't take the good things in your life and turn them into God things. Your children, relationships, career, bodily health, things like that. Turn them into a God that you worship, a different kind of idolatry. Sure, definitely that. But really, at the end of the day, it seems that what John is saying, or the real danger that he alludes to, is the one where someone takes Jesus and reshapes him into a more palatable version, one that they like, who fits their view of the world. Instead, we have to look to the scriptures and find the real Jesus, the true vine, and follow after him. So let's conclude our study of 1 John by thinking about or reading the words of Jesus. He said this in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, I'm concerned that many in the visible body of Christ, the church in the West, they're not following Jesus. They're following a cultural Christianity, an outward experience. But for us, we want it to be our heart's aim and ambition to know Jesus and to follow him with our lives. So with that as the conclusion, and our tradition has been to have some applications at the end of, of each study. So here's the applications today. Number one, thank God for 1 John. You know, God gave it to us, preserved it for us. It's a beautiful little book. So say thank you to God for the book of 1 John. And number two, reread 1 John for the rest of your life. Those are my applications today. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.